Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I talk to my guests about the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They tell me about four things that they cherish from their life and would like to keep safe in a time capsule, and one thing they would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode, I'm delighted to say, is the actor, comedian, presenter, writer, YouTuber and part-time robot, Robert Llewellyn. Despite having more L's in his surname than seems appropriate, Robert has managed to carve out an amazing and quite unique career. He started out in alternative comedy, became a writer of sitcoms, presented the series Scrap Heap Challenge on Channel 4, appeared in loads of TV shows, hosted a game show, was one of the first people to release a show exclusively online, Carpool, where he interviewed famous guests whilst driving them to work, but he didn't sing with them, so obviously it's nothing like any other show that's got a similar name. He's written six non-fiction books, including a memoir and an autobiography, and six novels. He now presents a YouTube series called Fully Charged. In fact, Robert has been an advocate of renewable energy and electric cars for many years, since well before it was fashionable, at a time when the Top Gear presenters were laughing at such people and everyone around them joined in in a sort of overly sycophantic manner. And now, of course, those very presenters are driving around in Teslas and Robert is the go-to person on the subject of electric cars. Anyway, Robert's even answered questions on electric cars as his subject on Celebrity Mastermind. So, that's quite a career. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. He's played the part of Crichton in the very long-running TV series Red Dwarf since 1989. But you've probably never seen it, although apparently it's quite popular. So, let's find out what four things the multi-talented and astonishingly versatile force of nature that is Robert Llewellyn would like to preserve from his life, and the one thing he'd like to erase, as he tells me the five things he's going to put in his time capsule. 
So how have you been after all these years? I know it is it is such a that was such a fluke of chance that I noticed that one tweet. I mean the chances of me seeing that because I don't have Twitter running all the time and I mean no. I must miss thousands of comments and messages I don't see. So it was just a very very fluke thing. I use Twitter as a thing that where people contact me. Yes. And then I sort of say things, you know, sort of a, you know, this is me declaiming to the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I wait for them to come back. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but then, uh, since then, I've subscribed to the show, and it is the most fascinating thing because it's very gen. I mean, I love it because because I'm recording podcasts all the time, but they're really specifically yeah. sort of tech based. I'm contacting you know scientists and engineers and you know weird clever people, mm. and so it isn't a kind of personal thing. And these are very sweet, uh, you know. They're, they're, and it's weird because some of the people I know well, some I've met. Some I've never met and don't know anything about, you know, so it is, uh, it is fascinating. And of the people you know well, were you surprised by some of the things they chose? Yes, I think so, yeah, yes. I am, when I'm talking to them, I think, well, I had no idea about that. Yeah. That's the joy of it, actually. That's the reason yeah. that my enthusiasm for it continues, because every time I talk to someone, I enjoy talking to people I don't know, Yeah, but it's sort of almost doubly interesting to talk to people that you think you know. Yeah, yeah. And to find out things about them. Yeah. So let's um, let's see what you've got. Okay. Well, I think the place I will start, the first thing I'd like to put in, because it's quite, it's very rare. Mm. There's not a lot of them about, is a Joey's poster. And I was thinking, oh, uh, I don't want to do that. It's sort of naff. And then I was like, well, actually, this, like, I think there were six. I think we, that we screen printed six posters. They're beautiful posters. They were uh, designed by a guy called Derek Hayes, who I still keep in touch with, who is a, an animator, in fact. Mm. And anyway, so it's a beautiful drawing of the three of us on stage, uh, very cartoon-like. And the first time we went to the Edinburgh Festival, which I think was 81, we put up a poster. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think it was the one I've got, so I've got one that I've framed, but it is a bit tatty and ripped at the edges. Mm. And we only had one poster with us, so we put that up outside the venue and it was that classic, I don't think that could happen now, uh, that experience. So I had never been to the Edinburgh Festival before. No. I kind of thought, you've got to go to Oxford or Cambridge, and then you'll be like the, the Beyond the Fringe people. I knew about them. Mm -hmm. uh, while I was there, I met Stephen Fry, Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, because they were doing whatever they were doing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we met them one night. I do remember meeting them later on in the festival. And they won the first Perrier Award. So whatever year it was that the first Perrier Award happened is when we were there. So back then. And so we put this poster up outside this venue called Buster Browns, which was a disco right uh, sort of under next to the railway line. It was grim. <laughs> it was a classic thing. So all those things, I had no previous experience to go on. And I go, why are we doing the show here? This, we'd been gigging in London for a year. I mean, two yeah. years. We were kind of quite well established in London. We were sharing the venue with a brilliant all-women group called The Cunning Stunts. <laughs> I remember. Yes, they were fantastic. Yes. But they were kind of on their, they were at the end of their theatrical life. So they were winding down and we were winding up. So there was quite a lot of gender-based stress. <laughs> <laughs> there was a very ardent, brilliant feminist theatre troupe who weren't at their finest at that point. And there was this cocky load of blokes who were a bit sure and we're doing stuff about sexism and masculinity and all those things. That was our topic. Yes, and in order to do that, sometimes you would push the boundaries, wouldn't you? We did. Some, I think we did. I think we did. But anyway, that first, so the first night we were on there, five people in the audience, and our rule was, because there was four of us, 
if there's less people in the audience than there are on stage, we won't do the show. We'll cancel and just get forget it. Yeah. And there was four people, and we were going, you know, we were talking to the woman organising it. Uh, you know, we can't go on. This is ridiculous. And one bloke came in. <laughs> one more. Yes, I must apologise. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it came in and fell asleep. No, first night five, second night 50, third night you couldn't get a ticket. So there was no way it was PR or clever promotion or Facebook didn't exist or Twitter, nothing. And one poster made no difference. It was word of mouth. Mm. And I think now that would probably, even now with all those things, I would think that would be quite a hard thing to do. But we had the advantage of we weren't students doing a tryout first time there. We were actually quite theatrically adept and slick and the show was well polished. You had a venue to go to and you had this reputation. But at the same time also, there was far less competition. Yeah, it is. It was because it felt enormous. I remember looking at the brochure before we left London. And I was just so depressed. I didn't want to go. I said, this is stupid. Look at it, because it was so many things on, yes. so many shows. And I was going, this is crazy. What? Who's going to come and see us? It's awful. So we lost money, mm-hmm. but we kind of survived when we were there. And it, you know, it was enormous fun. And I've now got to remember the name. That's damn, because I've been writing down names. Because I'm what I'm really good at is completely blowing name dropping because I can't remember the name that I want to drop. <laughs> I'm useless at name dropping. You know that really famous actress? He was in what's it? Yes, it's exactly. Oh, no, she was married to, um, oh, what's his name? You know the woman, she's got hair, she talks and walks along. <laughs> that, that actress. She's got an Oscar. She's got, she's got three Oscars. <laughs> most. But this is a, an author. She wrote, oranges are not the only fruit. It'll come back to me. So she, bizarrely, because of cunning stunts, was running our venue. And she was brilliant. She was great. Right. Uh, and she lives just down the road from me, and I see her still regularly, and I still, it's still not come back. Ah, oh, I, can't, I can't look it up. Your listeners will know who wrote Oranges the Only Fruit. I can see her, yeah. Eventually, I'll go out of the room and ask my wife, and she'll tell me immediately. Yeah, yes! <laughs> but anyway, so I thought that Joey's poster would be, you know, a, a thing. And I think because I didn't go to, I was expelled when I was 16, didn't go to university, you know, a massive disappointment to my parents because I was the child they had invested the most hope in. I was academically quite high achieving as a young kid and did 11 plus, went to grammar school, did really well. And I guess it was testosterone or something kicked in in the kind of late 14, 15, that era. And it, I just went, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I, I, because my son is the most gorgeous now 27-year-old who really... I used to have thick, dark hair until he reached his teenage years. (laughs) And it was tough. And he was nothing like as bad as I was. You know, he was an actual angelic and caring boy, even though he did set fire to quite a lot of stuff. (laughs) And we live in a wooden house, which is always a little bit, you know, makes you a bit anxious. Yeah, very good. (laughs) He's now lovely. And he he works for my company every now and then. He's a brilliant cameraman, editor. He's very, very good. And he wasn't a petrol head like you. No, not at all. No, not not a... not uh, particularly interested in cars. He's finally passed his driving test and learned to drive. He doesn't. He's not interested. You know, he has he mm. has to for work. Yeah, I love the fact that you were a petrol head. Now you're. Do they call it an electric head? Electric. I don't know if there is a term. A libtard, tree hugging, <laughs> uh, hypocrite, spark head, or electra head. I suppose. Yes, it could be. You should be yeah. a lightning lover. Lightning. Oh yeah, that's, that's not bad, is lover. it? Particularly as now you know, yeah. electric cars are 
Well, go as fast as petrol cars. I mean, in many ways, they're faster, but we don't need... I mean, you know, that kind of initial acceleration thing, I mean, it doesn't appeal to me at all. It makes me actually nauseous and <laughs> yeah. dizzy. I think it's an age thing. I don't think you can... I think our brains are loose by the time we get to our age. And so if you accelerate that fast, it all, everything... Goes. That's what it is. It's all those names of famous authors and actresses just fly out the back of my head. I can't... That's true. It's, a, it's a G-force. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. The Joeys were, as the name suggests... A very jolly group, I remember. It was a peculiar, you know, when I've looked back at it, I thought, God, we did that without doing TV. You know, we did, we did, I think we appeared on, you know, like local news shows. Newsnight, we were on Newsnight once. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, but we never did any kind of proper TV, you know, not really. And yet we would fill theatres. And I think that is, I think that time has possibly gone mm -hmm. where you could, you know, we filled really, I mean, not overnight, it took years, yeah. but we built up over, I think we were going for about five and a half years before we parted with musical comedy differences, mm -hmm. or musical, I don't even know. <laughs> uh, you know, it all came to a grinding halt. But, you know, in its heyday, it was an extraordinary experience. And for someone who hadn't come out of either university comedy or drama yeah. school, I had nothing, no experience before with writing. I always wanted to write. Mm. But to suddenly be on a stage in front of a thousand people and they laugh at something I've written in my bedroom in Islington, <laughs> it was like, I would I'll constantly blow the show because i just stand there going, wow, they're all laughing. I must remember this. <laughs> and then I'm meant to be saying something. <laughs> I was not, I think, a very professional, I still, still aren't, but, you know, it, is, it was a long learning curve. Thankfully, the, certainly the two others that I started the group with were brilliant performers and very adept and experienced. So I was very lucky in that sense to sort of sneak in. <laughs> I mean, that was, the, that was the way I described it to some drama students at RADA, the year group that were leaving RADA that year. They used to do they'd get people in to talk to them about working in the business. Yes. Said, I'm really not the right person. Are you sure? <laughs> they tried me out once. But what I said was, the only way I could explain how I got to where I was was that I went round the back of the building of showbiz to have a cigarette and I leant against a door and they'd forgotten to lock it and I fell in. Because <laughs> that's what it felt like. And then you couldn't find your way out. I couldn't find my way out. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think that's true of many of us. I've been asked to talk to students. You always feel such a fraud, oh, don't God, you? I know. How do I make it in this business? My advice to them is get a good accountant. Yes. Learn to do your own accounts. Do your own accounts. Do them every month. Don't wait till the end of the year. I wish I learnt those things earlier on. Yeah. yeah. Remember your national insurance number. These are yes. these critical things. <laughs> but isn't it about interpreting the role? No, no, no. No. Forget that. Just sign up for VAT. It's very important. <laughs> Unfortunately, that is absolutely the most critical thing. <laughs> so there we are. We will take your poster from Edinburgh yeah. for the Joeys. Because it can roll up and, you know, it won't take much. Yeah, well, I like the idea of the way you, we've got it framed. Yes. Yeah. Let's keep it in that form. And that's the first item that goes into the time capsule. <laughs> well, the other one I've written down, I think I don't know how I can do this. It's something I've... Strive, striven, strove. I've tried to do <laughs> my entire adult yes. Struved. I have struved for my entire adult life. And I think, I think my wife would confirm I failed fairly adequately, which is male emotional intelligence. Because <laughs> I understand the rudiments of it. If I read a book about it, I go, yeah, I get that. But to actually do it, I find quite challenging, you know. So, and it is a, it, it's that sensitivity. I have got better at it. I'm going to defend myself up to a point. But it is that thing where, you know, sometimes if you read about people on the autistic spectrum, yeah, I sort of go, I recognise an enormous amount of that activity. I've never been diagnosed as it, and I don't think I can claim I am. No. But 
I do understand it. I absolutely get it. And the two people I know who are definitely autistic and know they are and talk mm. about it and acknowledge it publicly, I get on with very well. Ah. <laughs> I don't have a problem. Yeah. And one of them did the joke, who isn't a brilliant engineer, one of them did the joke as, uh, how can you tell if an engineer is well socialised uh, because he looks at your shoes while he's speaking to you? <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. My grandson is autistic. Right. The focus is extraordinary. The focus is fantastic, but actually the ability to see things from a different point of view. I spend a lot of time trying to explain jokes to him. Right. Yes. Which he's very interested in. I can see what you've done there. Yeah. Uh, you've you've yeah. twisted that. That's That has two yeah. meanings. Yes. Yes. Very good. Very interesting. Thank you, Greg. Yes. <laughs> no, no, you're supposed to laugh. Yeah. <laughs> the idea. <laughs> but then, so I had an extraordinary moment uh, that was completely random. It kind of really clicked with me with Dom Jolly, who I don't know well, but I've spent a bit of time with. We won Pointless Celebrities when we oh, did brilliant. that. We actually won. I've got the thing behind me. Uh, oh, I'm envious. Yeah, he lives quite close to me. I've done a few interviews with him. We've t- talked to it. And I was at a kind of garden party thing a few years ago with him. And there were some, I, I don't know who they were, whether they were relatives or close family friends, clearly a family group that he knew well. Mm. And it was very obvious that their son, who would have been maybe 10 or 11, was extremely disconnected in his autism. And there were a lot of other kids who were all running around. They were being really sweet with him. That was very nice to see. That's mm-hmm. when I noticed it. One of them gave him a hug and he just didn't know why. He was just sitting there. <laughs> yeah. But then Dom, who, you know, you've got to say Dom's probably not the most obviously empathetic human being I've ever met. (laughs) Just locked on, locked eyes with this kid and talked to him. And the kid spoke to him just perfectly, absolutely. And we were surrounded by noise and people and shouting and all sorts of stuff. Mm. And these two just kind of had a little chat and Dom was just seeing if he was all right. And I asked his, I got a bit teary because I asked his mum, I said, that is, is that extraordinary? She said, he's the only person that their son would do that with wow. they won't do it with her or the dad or their brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and you think well what is that skill it was an extraordinary moment yeah but i mean i think that's the it what it what made me aware of you know it's just those endless faux pas i made as a young man with women mm-hmm. and not this isn't necessarily in a flirtatious or romantic setting just general conversation i'd say something and then they'd all look at me <laughs> like, I went, why have you got to be so offensive? Why do you have to say that? You know, <laughs> and I wasn't, I hadn't set out to be offensive. I just said something in the conversation, but I was, uh, I had no clue of that. Uh, I couldn't pitch the sort of acceptable level of, emo- of emotion. And it was that kind of, I'm not, I'm not receiving these messages. I'm not getting it. No. And I always was full of awe, really, and admiration for women's insights into things. So I'd say, to a girl something. And then a, and a woman would say to me, well, she's not going to like that because... This. And I, I'd hear it, the explanation. i go, oh, yeah, it's blindingly <laughs> obvious. I didn't get it. No. <laughs> I didn't get it when it was happening. Why is that happening? And it does seem to be, you know, most... I've spoken to m- many male friends about it, particularly with young men of my generation, of our generation. We mm-hmm. hadn't got a clue. And I actually think it's improved. I think young men now are generally speaking, far more emotionally intelligent than we were. Like my son is not, he didn't feel like he went through that. You know, I'm sure he did in some ways, but he just seems to be clued up with it. He's cool with it. He's not threatened by gender politics, uh, gay people. You know, he's just cool. He's just a cool kid. He just gets on with everyone. Yeah. But there are so many things that we weren't told. That's the point. Yeah. Oh, God. So yeah. when you're suddenly confronted with it, we knew nothing about it. Right. We were not told, even though we had biology lessons and had sex lessons, I seem to remember. Yeah. But nobody ever explained a period to me. No. 
Good heavens. And my mother certainly wouldn't have done. <laughs> yes, I was just going to say. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was actually with my cousin yesterday who remember, was fondly remembering my mother and his mother, my mother and his mother's sisters, about how they just couldn't talk about any of that. Because, you know, I, my mum once asked, as an adult, you know, this is when I was in my late 20s, my mum asked me how many girlfriends I'd had. <laughs> and that we were walking along the River Thames in Oxfordshire. And I was going, oh, God, I don't know. I don't know. And blah, blah, blah. You know, doesn't, I'm not going to repeat. And then I said, well, how many boyfriends have you had? Oh, that was the initial. Oh, one, your father. And that was quite enough. Just such, <laughs> such a classic line. Yes. But, I mean, I think that actually I know a lot of men who interpret that emotional immaturity. Yes. I think that's what it is. Yeah. It stays with you through life quite often. Yeah. It's very difficult to unlearn it. But they do associate that with a sort of form of autism. There's a lot of men who say, oh, I think I'm a bit autistic. But actually the reality is we're a bit male. Yes. I think that's what it is. I think you could be right. And also I think it is specific to the industry that I was part of for quite a long time, the comedy. The field of comedy is that in a sense you you need to hold on to your childishness. Mm-hmm. You know, your immaturity is a benefit to you in those things because you'll let you'll just make those stupid leaps of fantasy or whatever. Yes. Which, as a if you were studying accountancy, would probably be frowned upon. You know, <laughs> no, quite. or the law. If you're doing, you know, it's those. You know, you're you're being. What do you get paid to do? To be silly. You know, in a sense, that's what you're doing. Yes, and I think that is a, a thing. Is that I feel I stretched my adolescence really until my late 30s early 40s mm. it was about then and when I'd had children I went I think I probably have to be a bit grown up now yes although there was one morning when my son was about four so what have we been 12 or 13 somewhere around that and I cannot remember the circumstances of what Judy and I were doing his mum and dad but she, it, she, she was a gymnast when I met her. She was in Circus Oz at the, that's where I've met her at the Edinburgh Festival in the eighties. Uh, and so she's kind of got that side to it. And I think she did a sort of silly, deep-voiced thing, you know, like you're going to have to get your act together, kid, or something like that. She walked past him, <laughs> and then I was mincing up and down with one hand on my hip, being outrageously camp, and it's wrong. And a heterosexual man shouldn't do that, and I accept that now as we've moved on. But he was sitting next to the cooker, and he just said. I've got a gay dad and a lesbotic mum. What hope is there for me? <laughs> now, that gives a clue that we weren't being that mature when we were parents. No. But it's, what's the word lesbotic? I've never heard it before or since. <laughs> Let's put male emotional intelligence. The striving, striving for male emotional intelligence is not a bad thing, I think. No, it's not a bad thing at all. It is something that we continue to do, but it's well worth putting in there to remind yeah. us that, that we should carry on. Yes. It's all right, that goes in. That's your second item. Into the time capsule. We've got two in, we've got three to go. Oh, my goodness. So, well, I suppose I'm going to go for Perigian. So, Perigian Beach in Australia. So, when I met Judy here... As I mentioned, she was in circus also. She was a, a circus gymnast, effectively. Mm. She had a physique of a beautiful young Australian woman crossed with Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> so quite challenging. <laughs> quite challenging for an emotionally juvenile, slightly immature British middle-class guilt-ridden male. Um, <laughs> and the very first time we met, which was in the, the Star Bar, I think it was colloquially known as, in at the Assembly Rooms in Edinburgh, mm-hmm. And there were all the circus people from Circus Oz who were all kind of ripped and pipped uh, gymnastic people with all in sort of ripped vests and tights with stars on and big boots and like shocks. It was very punky sort of 
you know, post-punk, post-apocalyptic look they had. Mm. And there's this one girl with big red lips and hair everywhere, just with massive arms. I mean, like big, <laughs> pumped-up, muscular arms. Just sitting there, and she was smoking and drinking. And I w- went up to her and I went, oh, hello, I really enjoyed your show. <laughs> or something. <laughs> I can't remember what. Pathetic, pathetic. And her friends remember this. This is why, because Judy claims she doesn't remember And she just looked me up and down. She was chewing and then turned away and carried on talking to someone else. That was how romantic our first meeting was. Yeah, that was you put in your place. Oh, my God. Yeah, Mm. just, yeah. But, I mean, yeah, so a year later we kind of got together. But she is, um, so then we went to, I went to Australia with her and we stayed with her mum in, uh, in Brisbane. And I'd never been to Australia before and I'd also never been to a tropical place before because Queensland is a tropical it's mm. in the tropics. It's yep. as Judy's mother would say. I think you'll find it quite hot, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> so the average daytime temperature about thirty-five, thirty-eight. Uh, you know, it's pretty, pretty warm and very humid. But so we'd stayed in her suburban childhood home for maybe a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. and it was lovely. It was wonderful, and we'd seen all the aunts and the brother, her, all her brothers and their children and everything. So I kind of got introduced to the whole extended family. But then we borrowed a car drove up the coast, which, you know, I didn't know what that meant. And we went to this quite grotty but nice, friendly uh, motel, I suppose it was. And it was in a place called Perigian. And it isn't a place as we'd understand it in old Europe. It's some houses along a road. (laughs) It's not a village. (laughs) No. And it was amazing. And it was so amazing to escape the family. It was just the two of us. And we walked out of this motel and over a sand dune, and I just, I'll never forget it. It's just the most extraordinary. I, first time I'd seen the Pacific. Mm. And this is a 55-mile uninterrupted beach. God. It is just, so either you cannot, it fades into mist. You know, if you look south or look north, it's just, it, there's no end, there's no kind of headland sticking out, which you no. can see. It's just, it's just this huge beach, massive waves crashing in from the Pacific. Mm. And then the other thing I didn't know is, one, the sand, when you walk on it, is so hot, it actually burns your feet and you've got to be really careful. Yeah. <laughs> so I was running across the sand, going, ah! and then I ran into <laughs> the sea, and I hated the sea. Like I grew up on English beaches with my parents in either Scotland or North Wales or, you know, Cornwall, anywhere. It doesn't matter where you were. It was The water was bitterly cold and grim. And I put my foot gingerly near the surf, and it was hot. It was like a bath. <laughs> it was a transformative moment for me. I went, the sea is nice, except the only downside, of course, there is there's some creatures that hang around, not sharks, you've got to go a bit deeper for them, but there's some fairly dangerous stuff, <laughs> yes. like jellyfish, stingrays. I didn't know about that then. I was very relaxed about all that. Those very strange things called blue bottles. Nasty. Nasty. Yes, I've not had a blue bottle sting, but it's a tiny little thing. Yeah. Tiny thing. A little bubble yeah. on the surface of the water yeah. with an enormous tail that hangs down. Huge And if you tail, touch it, yeah. it just wraps around you. It stings you right yeah. across. I once dived off a boat into Sydney Harbour right. and came up and everybody was shouting, get out, get out, screaming at me. And I thought, I immediately thought, shark. And yeah. I, I was like a cartoon as I swam back to the boat and yeah. almost leapt out of the water back onto the boat. Oh, my God, I said, what, what, what was it? What is it? He said, blue bottles. Wow. And I, but you didn't get stunned. I right? didn't, amazingly. I looked back right. and there the whole water was covered in these little wow. bubbles. Wow. So I'd swum right through them and managed to not get stung. Very wow. lucky, yeah. very lucky. Yeah. How far up the coast did you go then? I've only been up to, like, uh, Bundaberg, that sort of up there. I don't even know where. We went with the kids once. We went camping on the beach with Judy's brother and his kids. Mm. It felt pretty remote, but we actually, if you look on the map, we were maybe a 
eight, nine hundred miles north of Brisbane. So it right. goes on a long way. It's a long, you know, right up. So I haven't been up in Cairns, up right up the top. Uh, no. I mean, Judy has in, in her youth. Uh, she went up there. It's a long way. It's a huge country. It has a long way. Really. Yeah. Yeah. So that same year, so this is before we had children, that same year, she went to, so soon after we were, we spent quite a long time at Pridgeon, which was, you know, I still, it still holds out as the most idyllic moment. It was like a real life-changing moment. It's one of those few things where, you know, I'd been in France and Italy and Spain a bit mm -hmm. and, uh, and America, I guess. But, you know, this was just so extraordinary. The physicality of it was so extraordinary. And the kind of that whole nature of Australian life of, you know, here I just survived and I go to Australia and I suddenly have a lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. I kept walking up down the street going, geez, I'm having a lifestyle. <laughs> Never had this before. You know, I got suntanned. I felt, you know, we were doing, because she's so fit. Yeah then I really did try. It was pathetic. But there was a period around that time, sort of late 30s, where I was probably quite fit for an English bloke. I had some muscles, very discreet ones, <laughs> and I wasn't overweight, and I was, you know, cycling a lot and running a lot and doing all that stuff, and, you know. So there was this short period. <laughs> I was sort of just about in that area, and partly because of her, because she was so ridiculously... You know that she had to, when she was in the circus. They trained for hours every single day, seven days a week. You know they had to, or they couldn't do the show. No, and that's what it takes to get to that point where you see people who play superheroes in movies. That, that you know, yeah. what do they do with their lives? Nothing except train. <laughs> they are, and she would now say, "You can't do it unless you're a moron." You know, she's very rude about it. You have to be <laughs> stupid to do it because you're not doing anything else. Because you've got to eat exactly right and train and train and train and train. Yeah. Know? We are surrounded by those people, aren't we? We're surrounded by people like musicians yeah. who've spent their life learning to play an instrument extremely well. Yes. You know, uh, dancers who, again, dedicate themselves to this thing for hours and hours every day of their yeah. life, from when they're small children yeah. through to doing it on a stage in London. And we just wander on and say some lines. <laughs> and in your case, then look at the audience and go, oh, they're laughing. Oh, hang on a oh, minute. Oh, they're laughing at that. I wonder why that is. <laughs> Sadly true. But anyway, Perugian Beach Perugian is beautiful. Beach. I, don't want, no. I don't really want anybody else to go there. And yeah, the thing is, it's a tourist attraction now. It's, got, it's changed even since. So that was 30-something years mm -hmm. ago when I first went there. And it's really developed now. But it's, it's not gone all high-rising. So I don't know if you ever went to the Gold Coast. I did, yes. So which I actually love. Mm. But, I mean, it has got those massive tower blocks. A similar beach. It's not quite as long, but a beautiful beach there. And those ridiculous tower blocks. We've stayed in one of the sort of mad pink ones <laughs> yes. that's right on the... You go, this is the most insane thing. <laughs> It's like sort of Vegas with a beach, in a way. What it? I was aware of when we were there is that you have this thing, and then beyond it, I mean, only sort of a couple of hundred yards beyond it, you're back into the bush. Mm. And that goes on for another 5,000 miles. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that was the, the, always the thing about um, I'm a Celebrity, where they do the, you know, in the jungle stuff. Uh, I mean, Judy knows where that is. It's some, there's, she has some mates who live very nearby. Ah, right. Uh, yes. And it's basically, if you were to drive along the road, which is like within, you could literally throw a rock from the road and it would land in the camp. There's a row of suburban houses, which is what they use as their production offices. And then behind that is, it is bush, but it's not exactly way out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> no. It's sort of on the edge of suburbia of the Gold Coast, you know. Well, you'd rather hope that if they're going to make a programme like that in what they call the middle of the jungle, yeah. there's a hospital quite close by. Not, not too bad, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you do you rather want that. But yeah, so yeah, Perugian Beach, I just thought that is, and there's a fabulous photograph of it's my favourite picture of our young family. So uh, myself, my daughter, my son and my wife in a row on a beach house 
definitely we're having a lifestyle as a young family. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it's just, you just think, oh my God, we were, you know, you kind of forget. Yeah. And you look back at that, we were so lucky because we lived in Sydney for, I don't, uh, their kids went to school there for a bit uh, mm-hmm. in the, around uh, 2000, 2001, when they were very young. And, you know, now I look back on that and go, did we really do that? We were so, so privileged and lucky to be able to do that. And they just went to the local state school up the road, which they loved and actually uh, did very well there. And it was always a big contentious topic because I didn't want to come back here, mm. but Judy did. But I mean, while we were there, I was working in Los Angeles, which did not all the time, but I was doing like six weeks in Sydney, six weeks in Los Angeles, which again, because that's that will lead on to my final thing. But you know, that's not a clever way of living your life. It was daft, you know, it was really difficult. And when you've got small children, that sort of stuff is... I know, not fun. Very stressy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, right, okay yeah. then, Bridge and Beach, in it goes. Bridge and Beach, yes. How lovely. Right, so we've got one more thing that you treasure. Yes. And one thing that you'd like to discard from your life. Okay, it's time for some adverts. So we have to take a brief break from my chat with Robert Llewellyn. But we'll be back very soon. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. And as the Grim Reaper said to the inept doctor, thank you for your patience. Right, let's get straight back to Robert Llewellyn and the things he'd like to put in his time capsule. Right, well, I'll do the treasure thing because I think this is... A thing you treasure, but with a bit of piss and vinegar. So it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's it's a rubber mask. I think I do have to put that in because it's it's been such an important part of my life with Red Dwarf and uh, Crichton, and you know coping with that rubber head. So I actually have got one, uh, you know, one we didn't use mm-hmm. from a series we would have done in the nineties, but it's basically putrid rubber semi-dust it does break up you know it's a um a prosthetic foam mm. rubber and it doesn't last that long so there is i've got a box with it in and you can tell it was a Crichton mask but if you touch it it just goes to, 
rather unpleasant tacky dust. It's not pleasant. So I've got a mould that is my head that the mask mould is made of. And do they do a new one each series? Or? Yeah, I do a new one each day that I'm wearing. A new mask every day? A new mask every day, because their masks are destroyed when you remove them. Of course. Uh, you, yes. the, the stuff that removes the glue, because the glue is unimaginable uh, stuff. It's surgical glue. You know, to get that off, you can use a special oil to get that off. Well, it destroys the mask as well. You, right. can't, you can't use them twice, which makes it quite a pricey... Mm-hmm. And how long does it take them to put that on? Well, the, the first year I did it, so that 1989 was the first year I did it, was uh, five hours in the morning. So I can't quite remember. There's a great story that Craig loves telling, which is, you know, me and Danny were out, we were out like with some, I don't know what we were doing, man, I can't remember, you know. But anyway, <laughs> we come back to the hotel, lift door opens when we're going up to my room just to have a couple of stiff ones. <laughs> and there's Bobby. And I said, Bobby, come up to the hotel. He's in a, I can't, I'm going to work. So <laughs> I met them coming back from clubbing when I was off. I was off to work. And then he'd be there at like nine o'clock in the morning when we, uh, when we started shooting. Perfectly all right. Mm. You know, and I mean, he was, at, I don't know how he did it. I don't know how that man is still going. <laughs> yes, it's remarkable. He was a lively young man, wasn't he? <laughs> he was a lively young man. He's a delightful, slightly older man, but he's still going yeah, strong. He's brilliant. I love listening to him on the radio, actually. I think he's, a, oh, he's, brilliant, he's a great he? DJ. Oh. He's really great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such yes, an enthusiasm so he has for it. And a knowledge. Genuine knowledge, mm-hmm. amazing knowledge. And really, really, because I've been on the show as a guest a couple of times and I've, really after the first time i did it i then really went super obscure and i'd go through his lists because i had to choose something he had yeah he would have on his playlist and <laughs> so i went through all these things to find them mo- i've never heard of them. who the hell is that? i've never right and i ask him that and he goes oh yeah that's right well they were recording that in 1963 at something studios and they were saying you know the whole thing. <laughs> he's got no notes he's got Nothing, no, no you know no <laughs> amazing you're very lucky with the casting of that, I think. Wasn't that amazing piece of luck? Yeah, because that was, uh, well, you all know a lot of the people involved, but it was Paul Jackson came to see a play I was doing at the Edinburgh Festival mm-hmm. in 1988, which is when I met Judy. So that was a bit of a turnaround year. I'd met Paul a few times. I knew who he was and what he'd done, but I didn't know him well. And he came up to me in the foyer and said, you know, come to, as you know, he stands very close. <laughs> yes. He likes to be very, very close. So I could feel his nose tickling me as he was talking. Love to come and see the show, Bobby. Yeah, we're really excited about it. I want to come see it. I said, oh, God, I don't know what I can do. It's, it's sold out. I can't get you in. And I think you can get me. You can get me in. You can get me in. <laughs> and eventually, I literally put a hard chair we found out the back on the side of the stage. He wasn't really on the stage, but he was on the, where the entrance for the audience goes it coming in and out. Yeah, he'd done the young ones by then, didn't he? Oh, he'd been incredibly successful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyway, so he got me to go and meet Rob and Doug, who wrote Red Dwarf at the time, and, and Doug Naylor still does to mm. this day. And and I was quite reticent about it, because I say, well, you know, I've got my own projects. <laughs> oh, oh. I just want to go back and just punch myself in the ear and just shut up and say yes. Oh, <laughs> thank God they didn't listen. I know. I'm working on a lot of my own projects, <laughs> none of which, none of which ever saw the light of day. <laughs> so Rob and Doug were sitting behind the table in a little room in Soho, and I walked in and I, had, and I didn't want to do auditions. I had this real thing. I don't want to be an actor. I don't want to do auditions. I, I, I was embarrassed. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just, it's just awful. I'm, I'm a rubbish actor. I shouldn't be allowed, you know. So they called it a meeting. <laughs> they said, <laughs> it's not good. an audition, it's a meeting. <laughs> so I went and talked to them, and, they, and we were talking about how robots walk, because uh, Paul had told them about how I did funny walks on the stage in this play. Mm. 
Pretending to be a robot. Pretending to be, and then and then how how you get those walks. So there was a kid I was at school with who had muscular dystrophy, and instead of us all bullying that kid or teasing him, we all walked like him because he had a very peculiar walk. So all the bad boys, of which he was one, would walk around the playground and go into a classroom, and it was a very particular walk. He had to kind of swing his legs forward, and he had a, he would often have a walking frame or walking sticks. We didn't do that, but we'd do that walk, which, you know, you think that is so cruel, but then you think, actually, I don't think it is. <laughs> I don't think we weren't teasing him or making, we, he was one of the cool kids, you know, he was very, very bright boy, but he just had, he couldn't walk very well and he had very weak arms and shoulders. Mm. So all that stuff, there was him. And then there was Douglas Bader, who I was obsessed with as a kid, mm -hmm. who didn't have any legs. So I, and I, I remember all the, there was a film, famous film with a famous actor who, of course, neither of us will remember his name, who, who did that. But that particular walk where he had to learn to sort of throw his hips forward to be able to walk with yeah. two prosthetic legs. You think of Peter Sellers in, uh, in the film where he's got a false arm. Oh, yes, yes. And just um, moves it around all the time. About, the, about the atomic bomb, yes. yes. When he was, yes. Yeah. Uh, this is not a podcast to listen to if you want detail. <laughs> you have to be furiously Googling to keep up with all the vague references. But you won't be able to do it because we can't remember the references. But anyway, so I did all these silly walks up and down in front of them, which they seemed to like. And then they got up to shake my hands and say, oh, that's good. You know, well, let's talk again, blah, blah, blah. And Rob gets up and he just shakes my hand. And then Doug gets up. Doug has only got one leg. He lost a leg when he was a little boy. I didn't know that. Yeah, so he has a prosthetic leg. So he walks up to me with a prosthetic leg, and I've just been doing prosthetic leg comedy walks. Oh, my God. So I go, oh, nice to meet And I don't even look at him. I just go shake his hand, and I get out, and I apologise to Paul. I literally run back up the stairs, get my bike, unlock it as quickly. I don't want to see him ride off going, damn, why did I do that? No. But Doug is, a, he's a bigger man than that. He didn't, mm. uh, you know. Yeah. So it was very touch and go that I got into that, into that show. And I mean that, again... 1988, that was, when I met them. Mm -hmm. So I would not have thought that in 2020, 20, 2019 was the last time we made Red Dwarf. So, Extraordinary, you know, uh, Yeah. And, I mean, they, they're still, potentially, we'll do more. I'm not sure. You know, there's nothing planned. But, you know, we, no. it, it's gone on ridiculously long time. There was a big gap when we didn't do it. Yeah. But, um, but it's been popular all that time. That's yeah, the thing. It's never, never become unpopular. It's never like it I, sort of faded away. No, it still has an enormous audience. It is a, a, a fashion thing. It's my theory. So I'm sure it could be shot down in flames very easily, but is that it was never fashionable. So in the eighties, it wasn't a fashionable show, mm -hmm. you know, and there were people who were on the TV then who were like massive and they were really, you know, and yeah. Red Dwarf was always a bit, bit sort of nerdy and weird and, and you know, off off centre. And, and that is what effectively allowed it to survive. It's kind of gone on. Because if you look back at the early ones now, they're no different. I mean, they're not, there's not, you're not looking, oh my God, look what they wore in the 80s. There's none of that. <laughs> no. Look at that kid. He looks like an idiot. And he still does now. Yeah, that's quite. <laughs> well, Rob and Doug, of course, also, uh, I have a connection with them in as much as um, they wrote the lyrics for the chicken song. which The I... chicken song? Of course. Mm -hmm. I might have forgotten. So there we are. Of course. Isn't that weird? It's your number one record. My that the number most? one. What a ridiculous thing to say. Yeah, it is me, Bowie, the Stones, the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, we all have number one. It's a chicken song. God. It is a disturbing thing when you find the number of people that you really, really admire who've never had a number one. And, <laughs> and then you feel very guilty. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> oh, God, how extraordinary. Well, that rubber mask, I mean... Uh, Tell me that the technology has improved and it doesn't take five hours now. Oh, enormously. No, it is much better now. So that first year I did it, I just went, you know, 
I kind of got, I felt like I got talked into it, then was really happy that I got talked into it, met the rest of the cast, got on with them really well straight away. They were amazing. Mm. Then went to have some technicians from the BBC cover my head for a long time with alginate, like you bite on when you go to the dentist, that mm. stuff, whole head covered in that, then plaster Paris on top, breathing through a straw up your nose. <laughs> I mean, what the... I thought I was going to get like a helmet like Robocop had, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then take that off and have lunch. So yeah. then once I put that on, you know, and there's lots of stories about it, but uh, I could eat. No one was stopping me eating. But if I was eating and got anything on the lips, one, the lips would all get fluffy and fall off. And two, it felt like you had someone else's flannel in your mouth. Oh. <laughs> it's really unpleasant. <laughs> someone you didn't like. <laughs> Somebody old. Somebody old that you didn't like, oh, and no. they've, they've shoved their, their flannel in. It was just horrible taste of this <laughs> sort of bit of old curry on your lip. It was terrible. So that was a nightmare. So I then learned not to eat while I had it on, and I just have a milkshake at lunch. And of course, you know, Dan and Craig and Chris would come and eat their lunch. And I was seeing this beautiful food when we were on location. Wonderful. Yeah. Ke- and I was having a milkshake, you know, it was miserable. <laughs> so years and years of that. And then, uh, but that casting process at the beginning of the each series was pretty challenging mm. i coped with it a lot of i mean there and all the people who do that lots of stories of actors that freaked out and couldn't cope and others who were very calm about it and you know it's quite you, you don't know until you do it how you're going to react because no. if you have i guess if you have claustrophobia this is about the ultimate test <laughs> <It's> indeed because <laughs> you cannot see here or do anything for about an hour and a bit you know it's pretty horrible and that did one time we were doing that around 2001 i think and it went wrong in the sense that I'm sitting there with this thing on, I'm used to it. And then I, like now, if I did it now, I'd go, <clears throat> anyway, blah, 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 like a tiny little throat clear. I couldn't do that. And it all went, I don't even know. That's all I can remember. I went into a complete, you know, it's like a reptilian panic. It's not your conscious brain that's acting. What? It's something else and you cannot do anything and you're trapped in this thing. They could tell from outside because the woman who was my makeup woman had her fingers on my wrist and she said, your heart rate was like a motorbike. Yeah, It just went, you know, it just went, she couldn't believe it. So they ripped it off really fast. I can't really remember much about it, but boy, does that trauma stay with you. So I then said, look, I can't do it anymore because I can't do the cast thing. I just don't want to go through that. So, I'm, you know, it doesn't matter what the deal is. I just can't do it, you know. And then, so then the next time I did do it, I went to a, a special effects place in uh, just outside London, sat on a big chair with 92 cameras rigged all around me wow. and I had to sit still for a second. That was a lot easier. And then they all go off. Choom! These cameras all go off at exactly the same time and they use that to 3D print your head. So that was the massive improvement. It's a hard thing to describe, but when you have all that stuff stuck on your face, it naturally, the weight of it just pulls your face down a bit. And so you're a little bit sort of pulled down a bit and you, and in a way that look of the kind of miserable Crichton is because the mask is sort of, <laughs> sort of that shape. You know, you've got to work against it. So the mould is kind of, you look a bit droopy. Everyone does that does it. Whereas the 3D thing, it's just like I am. Uh, it's the most unflattering uh, printed 3D head. There's no, you can't go, well, I look a bit more handsome. No, you don't. That's what you look That's like. That's a bit jowly, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> is that really, is that what the back of my head looks like? Yes, it is, yes. <laughs> so there's no there's no escape that. But the, the mask fits so beautifully now, and it doesn't pull up my face in any awkward way no it's now made of um silicon gel so it's quite heavy but you don't feel that when you've got it on uh, which is the stuff you'd seal around a shower tray or in the bathroom yeah. you know it's that it's that stuff 
So I can eat because you just wipe it off. It doesn't absorb. It's not a foam. It doesn't no. absorb it. So, and I, last time we did the long series, I put on about three kilos, <laughs> which I'd normally lose about 10 during a, and I put it on. And so, and then there were lots and lots of comments after the show went out that with people saying, looks like Crichton's downloaded one too many apps. <laughs> It's Crichton's midriff, which was ripped and slim in the 1980s, has has increased somewhat yeah. over the years. <laughs> but you've been stuck on a spaceship all this time. Stuck on a spaceship. He's got a lot of hard drives. They're all full of data. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So it's a lot. It is a lot, a lot less strenuous now. Uh, but such an enormous part of your life that's been. No, it has been a, a colossal one. Yeah. And as I say, terribly lucky. You know, Chris, Danny. So I've worked with Danny. I've done panto with Danny. Yeah, he didn't come on until just before the interval, so that he always had to be in the theatre at the half. Uh, uh, we were sharing a dressing room. He would climb out the window and go and have lunch somewhere oh and then knock on the window and I'd let him back in just before he was on stage. Oh, my God. And he would have cut it so far. He, oh absolutely, God. sometimes. And yeah. I was standing there with the costume going, you're on, you're on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is the most common term used on the set of Red Dwarf. It, and it is, it's just, it is. And it's no, not to denigrate Danny because I absolutely adore him, but it is, where's Danny? Mm. That is the thing you hear the most. <laughs> Right, so we're ready to go. Can we get the special effects ready to go? Okay, right. Where's Danny? <laughs> I guarantee he's not in the studio. Yes. You know. but then on the night in front of the audience, you know, there's some. sometimes we've given up trying to rehearse the scene with Dan because mm. he's just doing something else. He's got something more important. He's on the phone yeah. to a mate about a motorbike. <laughs> and then we do the scene and Danny steals it 100%, <sighs> does, hits that line, hits the mark, does the little move. They all love him. Mm. We're all there going, what the fuck? We've been trying to learn this for weeks. <laughs> And I know what a perfectionist Chris is. He's, yes. you know, he's incredibly detailed, always, everything he does. Such a beautiful joy to work. I mean, that's the thing. I feel so privileged working with those guys. You know, when I sit next to Chris and he's doing Rimmer, mm. I'm, you know, I've blown quite a few scenes we've had to reshoot because I'm just sitting there absolutely mesmerised by him. He's <laughs> so brilliant. Then it's my, I've got to, meant to say something. I've completely forgotten it. I haven't got a clue what's going on. No, no he's brilliant. That was a wonderful moment. I went, I was at a friend's birthday party and one of the guests was the producer of Death in Paradise. And of course, can I remember his name? No, but I've remembered the show. <laughs> Very good. And he's a lovely guy, really lovely guy. <laughs> he was such a sweet man. And he said, um, You've worked with Danny. He's a cockney. You've worked with Danny a long time, haven't you? You know, as you get, I said, he's brilliant. I love him. He's always brilliant on the thing. I mean, sometimes you're not quite sure during rehearsals because <laughs> he's, he's been on the phone or he's reading something, you know, and he went, yeah, yeah. Because sometimes, is he sometimes like not there when you're expecting it? <laughs> Same problem. I said, sometimes, yeah. And he said, I'm there on the set and I go, there's someone saying, where's Danny? And I said, I don't know. We're on a fucking island. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh so it's exactly God. the same seven years he did death in paradise and he was always off somewhere yeah. but then yeah. as you say you know it was demonstrably clear when he did strictly god he puts the work in beforehand doesn't he yeah i mean that sort of movement stuff is mm. just beautiful when he does do it i always love it because when we got married here we got married in the village and we had a tent we borrowed a friend's big you know really big tent yeah. with lots of people there and loads of mates came and did a song and did all sorts of stuff for us which was very sweet and danny came up the first thing he said when he got on on the little stage in a Cotswold village, which was, you know, I would say the, the rest of the crowd was 95% white. He said, <laughs> I couldn't believe they let me in, guy. <laughs> <laughs> then he sang this beautiful song. It was absolutely exquisite. It was amazing. And the whole village still talk about it. 
Mm. They can't believe it. There's one old lady who's still with us who worked in the village shop and Craig came in his Rolls Royce, which was, he drove like it was a stolen Ford Fiesta. <laughs> and he pulled up outside the village shop. He said, I'm looking for Bobby's house, Bobby Llewellyn. Yeah, I'm going to burgle it. I can't help it. It's where I'm from. <laughs> that was his little joke. This poor woman, was it? <laughs> this man came up in a Rolls Royce and he said he was going to burgle your house, Robert. That's <laughs> all right, it's Craig. Don't worry. <laughs> Brilliant. All right, then, we put in your Crichton mask yes. into the time capsule. So the final item is something that you can reject from your life. Yes, I mean, it is a huge burden of guilt, I suppose, this is, which is flying. So now I don't know if anyone else has chosen flying, but I mean, no? because I think this has become really super apparent in the last year, you know, or last 18 months, is how much I flew before the pandemic and all that stuff for what? And it's always for work. I mean, the only exception would be going to Australia with, with Judy and with the family, mm. which was kind of once every two years for me. I mean, I don't, I'm not, not going back and forth every other week or anything, no. but you know, that, and those are huge long haul flights, massive commitment, you know, all that stuff, massive impact. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really made me go, Oh my God, I flew a lot. And I think what tipped it was when Greta Thunberg first kind of hit the headlines and became a thing. And I went, oh, God, that's extraordinary. I saw her speak and I go, that is so classic that I'm an old man and here's this woman saying this and I can get a bit grumpy and go, what does she know? She's only a kid. Mm -hmm. And then you listen to what she said and go, yeah, she's only a kid and she's annoying, but she's right. Yeah. (laughs) She's not kind of making it up she's right yeah, i think that's why it annoyed so many grown-ups. yes yes and then, and then i look i see her, she's on twitter so i go oh i'm gonna she's extraordinary i'll follow her on twitter i look mm. at her profile she's following me on twitter and i go oh sh-. and that was literally the only time ever that when i you know sometimes you you see someone that you you admire and you're in, interested in mm-hmm. usually people in the kind of engineering sciencey world for me and i look at that and they're following me and i go oh that's brilliant wow oh, hi, <laughs> This was like, fuck, she's following me. Oh, oh, she must know, you know, because if she knew how far I'd flown in my life, uh. <laughs> it's, it's millions of miles, you know, through work. And, and that's the peculiarity of doing sort of engineering shows, you know, shows mm. about how things are made. I did, you know, apart from Scrappy, which we made in America. And we, when we were making it in America, I was living in Australia, you know, just so much flying over that period. And then in the last... 10 years, it's been cars. So, you know, BMW will say, do you want to come and test drive this car? And you go, oh, brilliant. Mm. Where is it? Oh, it's in Croatia, or it's in Portugal, or it's in South Africa. And then it's Nissan. Oh, where can I come and drive it? Well, Tokyo. Oh, (laughs) uh, Hyundai. I'd love to try the new so-and-so. No one else has seen it. Yes, it's in South Korea. So I do, you know, that stuff went on and on and on. I mean, mostly it was Europe. I guess, but quite a lot in America, a hell of a lot in the Far East. And then ironically, more and more because you're trying electric cars. But, and there's more and more coming out. But then you're flying to drive a car that has less, you know, all those, <laughs> the, the obvious monstrosity of the hypocrisy mm. of it. And also, it's been such a huge relief not going to airports, not hanging around in the lounge before, not waiting to get on, not having your passport and make sure you've got it in your pocket and your ticket. Mm. All that stuff that I've done, you know, when I first did it, I, I think that's what I remembered the very first commercial airline flight I ever did in my life, which was, I was in my probably late twenties because I didn't grow up doing it. My family, I never flew anywhere with them when I was a kid. 
but I flew to Paris in a thunderstorm and everyone on the plane, I could tell, was terrified. I was thought, fantastic. I was looking, I was by the window, massive lightning across the sky and the plane was up and down and people screaming and bags falling out the top. I just thought it was the best thing ever. And that really stayed with me, which is completely counter to what I'm trying to say is how wrong it is. But, but I found it enormously relaxing because it was the one time in my life where there was nothing I could do to steer the direction. So I'm driving a car, I'm riding a bike, I'm walking down the street, I'm going to a meeting uh, and there's going to be intelligent women there who are going to know I'm not very emotionally mature. (laughs) You know, all the dangers in my life, (laughs) which are my fault. And and then I'm sitting in an airplane. What am I going to do? I don't know how to fly this plane. I can't even get in the front because it's all locked. There's nothing you can do. Relax. And I found it much more relaxing and, you know, sort of downtime in a yeah. way. It was quite nice, you know, that, that side of it. I really appreciate it. But I don't like it now, so I don't know what I'm going to do when it's sort of bubbling up again. Mm. There's people saying, do you want to come out here? And I'm going, oh, I'd quite like to do that, but can I drive? And is it possible to pay that back in a way? Is it possible to do those flights but at I, the same time? I mean, how many forests would you need to plant? Oh, just so many. I mean, I've got a lot of trees I planted in my garden, but that's, that's, that covers the first taxiing of an yeah. A380 Airbus going to Singapore. You know, just mm. it just gets you off the, you know. But, I mean, the thing that I am excited and interested about is, you know, 10 years ago when I started Fully Charged, the show I do now about electric vehicles, renewable energy, blah, blah, blah. It didn't even cross my mind that it might be a possibility as electric flight. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I don't think you or I are probably going to, see it very commonly, but it's certainly going to happen. Mm. Uh, And it may take a few more. But I think in the next 10 years, there'll be short-haul flights between cities in Europe that are 100% electrically powered. And we've seen one thing that I'm not allowed to, so couldn't take pictures of or say anything about yet, but was you just go, wow, that is really, really a a transcending development in technology, proper, like not a little aeroplane. No. <laughs> so tempting to, to describe it. No, no, it. I, well, I won't push you. Well, we've been allowed to, we've allowed to film something and we will reveal it when they reveal it. We can't say anything yet. But Fantastic. I mean, that's exciting, isn't it? So exciting, yeah. You look at the history of electric cars and for a long time you thought, it's just not going to happen, no. not going to happen. And then suddenly, bang. Yeah. In fact, going back to Lightning, so it's perfectly circular. Mm. The Ford 150 Lightning, which is an electric pickup truck in America, has just been launched, <sighs> has blown people away because... You know, I think it's ridiculous. It's a huge, big tank of a thing that that Americans love. It's a massive thing, but it's quite intriguing how it's captured the imagination of of American dudes that want pickup trucks. Right? Because it's, there's no question about it. It's much better. However you measure it, it's much better than the petrol one. It can tow more. It's faster. <laughs> it can go further on one charge than they can on a tank. Because you imagine the amount of fuel those trucks use. Yeah. You know all those things. It can run your house. If you have a power cut, you can run your house for three days, full nonstop, an American house, the most energy <laughs> chomping house, because you can take the power out of the car and put it into your house as well as put oh, it in. Oh, my word. So, you know, and you can run all your tools when you're out there in the bush making something, you know, I mean, all that yeah. stuff. You can run your power tools. You can run all sorts of stuff off it. You know, it's amazing, big, tufty, roughy pickup truck. Uh, and where the front is, you know, you imagine those massive, monstrous things. You'll have seen them in the States with those great big bonnets with that huge engine. You open that and it's a big 
storage space. There's nothing mm-hmm. in the front underneath the bonnet, as we would know it, under the hood. There's a huge, huge storage space. Amazing. I've spoken to my grandson, who's nine now. Right. And I've said to him, if he ever talks to me about driving, I say, well, the chances are you probably won't ever drive one of these. Yeah. I mean, he probably won't want to. No. Th- that it's an absurd thing to be doing. Yes. I mean, you, you've got grandchildren. I've begged for them, but I've been told <laughs> that's not, it's a, that my begging for grandchildren has been a very good form of contraception. I suppose both my children have told me that. But I think, you know, we might get one eventually. But um, I sort of fantasised about explaining to a child in, say, 10 years' time. No, what we used to do was sit behind a big piece of heavy metal and there were explosions in it. <laughs> and those explosions pushed the piston down and that turned a crankshaft, which turned a flywheel, which turned a gearbox, which turned the wheels, you know. And, and you, underneath us was a great big tank. Great big tank full of toxic, highly explosive fuel. <laughs> and you say that, you just think, that is bonkers. And I mean, because then you go, no, not explosions, Granddad. No, seriously, actual explosions. <laughs> <laughs> that is still considered normal, and which is, you know, yes, we all yes. grew up with it. It's normal, you know. But I mean, so that, I think that is now finally changing. It's been, a, from my perspective, it's been very slow because mm. I had an electric car in 2009 mm. and there was nowhere to charge it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a farm about 20 miles away where I ought to go back and thank him. Lovely farmer. I was on my way back here from Wales in this car. There's no way I could. It, the range was way too limited. Mm. No way I could get back here. And I, went, I don't know what I'm going to do because there's nowhere, there's no public charging. This is back, this would be 2009, I guess. Yeah, I can imagine. And I saw this farm and I went, because oh, I'd worked on farms, I went, he might. I had a lot of plugs and sockets. <laughs> he might be. So I drove in, I was very polite. I went, knocked on the door. I said, I'm really sorry to bother you and I'm very happy to pay for it. But would you mind if I plugged my car into your barn? But I've charged it for about half an hour and that got me, I only needed to, extra 20 miles though to get me home i thanked him profusely they gave me a cup of tea and a lovely bit of cake (laughs) while we while we stood in the barn with this old farmer looking at my car i don't think that's ever going to catch on no i can't see it but do you think i mean i've always said i'm sure that electric cars will get to the position where you'll be able to drive them near to something electric so, for example, you'd be able to park your car next to a lamppost. Yes, oh, that already happens. So that's very, very astute of you. Yeah, so in, uh, I mean, I shouldn't start talking about electric cars because we'll go on too <laughs> long. But Oslo at the moment, it's still a research thing. Although it's practical, there are, I don't know how many, sort of a large number, a couple of dozen Jaguar I-Pace taxis mm-hmm. running around Oslo. They never plug in. So they drive up to the train station or wherever they wait. there, And as they wait, there are things called induction plates. Of course. So it's induction yeah. charging. Yeah. And it's buried under the road. You can't even see them. But when they're above them, it's going bing. And that's quite high power charge. And they move forward and it's charging again. Then they move forward. Then they drive somewhere. Then they're at the airport, same thing. Yeah. And then there's various, everywhere where taxis might wait, they put those charges in. Yes. I think the infrastructure for that is quite expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, it is quite an expensive thing. Not on the car so much. To adapt the car to it is relatively cost effective. But burying that sort of infrastructure in a street in a city yes but of course once we have driverless cars yeah which again i can't see that it won't happen the amount of money that's been invested in it yeah and a lot of people realize well i don't need to own a car i just order one and it turns up there are so few cars on the road it'll be wonderful it would be so good wouldn't it can you imagine walking down a you know not even suburban street just streets in london and there's like one car parked in it yeah that was a, a, a clue i had from the 70s there's a photograph of me that someone showed me recently I hadn't seen since then of me in a, in Thornhill Square in um, Islington. It was about 1974 and I'm on a bike and I've got ridiculously long hair and I can't, I, an embarrassingly flowery jacket of some hippie sort of thing. 
And in the background, there's a Ford Anglia in, <laughs> on this street and nothing else. So there's this big, wide crescent behind me with no cars. Bonkers, isn't it? Well, it's gone when, in fact, if you need a car... Well, you know, I mean, I say an app on your phone, yeah, your phone, like Spotify. Yes. What song do I want to listen to? Which car do I want to pick me up? Yeah. As quick as you can walk out your front door, one will pull up outside. It'll be there. Yeah. And it knows exactly yeah. where you want to go and you get charged for it. Yes. You have a sort of a monthly subscription. So if you only want to do three journeys, like the cheap version of Spotify. You just do that. You know, and you're happy to listen to adverts. Yes. Get in the car and have five minutes of adverts before you leave. Yeah, I don't mind. No, I don't it's mind. It's cheap. You know, and that reduces the cost of it. Yeah, why yeah. not? Or it plays adverts while you're going along you know you, yeah. you can listen to the radio but every third song is an advert all these things are possible and i think almost likely yeah i mean if i think of sort of a a, a hippie in that i would have gone to visit in the 70s in oxford because I, I lived in oxford when i was young and he had a bang and olufsen stereo with albums and he had that big rack of albums yeah. and he had loads of albums and if i could say to him you know by 2020 you won't have any records because you'll just be able to hear any song that's ever been made you'll be able to listen to in a couple of seconds mm -hmm. on anything. And you'll go, no, man, it's just not possible. Like, technically, that's not possible, man. <laughs> You've got to have albums. I could not have pictured that. But, you know, in my car, I can listen to anything. And, of course, mm. the thing is, I can't remember... <laughs> I can't remember what the song's called <laughs> or who sang it. He wore glasses. Come on, you remember him. It was a bloke. He was, he was quite and he short. had hair. He used to be in a group with... Um, the other yeah. one, the blonde one. He was more blonde <laughs> with the curly hair. Hopeless. Oh anyway, yeah, so flying. I, flying is... Uh, my air miles, I suppose. Yeah. You know, I would like to put that in. Well, in it goes, then. The guilt of your air miles. The, the, my air miles and my guilt. And, uh, <laughs> and I just hope that Greta doesn't listen to this podcast. Can you imagine? Oh, God, she's unfollowed me. <laughs> Robert, thank you so much for doing this. It's been lovely to talk to you. No, it's been great fun. Thank you. What a crazy podcast this is. <laughs> it's all your fault. It is. It's all your fault. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Robert Llewellyn. Four L's. That's just greedy. If you've had fun listening to this podcast and would like to hear more, then I'm sorry, but that's impossible. Oh, no, it's not. No, I'm lying. No, because you can subscribe to this show on Acast or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or almost any other podcast provider. And you'll get all new episodes as they're released and a chance to listen to all the episodes we've made so far. You can also be judge, jury and critic by rating the show or slash and leaving a review. Please be kind if you do. You can hear the theme tune in its entirety on Spotify. It was written by Pass the Peas Music. This has been a cast-off production for Acast. And our producer goes by the charming and somewhat familiar name of John Fenton Stevens. So, that's it. I'll stop talking now and let you get on with your day. I'm sure you've had enough of me babbling on. But, you know, in my defence, I have to say, I may look like an idiot and sound like an idiot, but don't let that fool you. I am an idiot. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.